Welcome to episode 226 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week my guest is Janae Sergio. She is a Navy veteran, but the story of how she ended up in the Navy starts with her mom dropping her off at a homeless shelter at 16. After a friend suggesting she join the military, she said no, but a free meal was a desirable meal while being homeless, and she met with the recruiter and listened to what he had to say. It sounded like a great deal, and she decided to join the Navy. In this episode, we talk about her experience in the Navy. She worked on an aircraft carrier in supply and was one of the first ships to deploy for Operation Enduring Freedom. She also shared about being raped during A school, a training after boot camp, and how it led her to advocate for women later in her career and something she still does today. She also wrote her story in a book called Perfectly Flawed, A Veteran's Journey from Homeless to Hero. We talk a little bit about how that book came to be, why she wrote it, and what she's doing today. Before we get started with this week's episode, there's a pretty unique podcast I want to tell you about. It's called True War Stories Mission Report. Every episode, a real veteran tells their story, and the story is mixed with a cinematic presentation of key moments from the true story. The show has original music, immersive sound design that puts you in the fight, and features star performers like Adam Baldwin from Full Metal Jacket, Ryan Hirsch from Sons of Anarchy, Lucas Till from CBS's McGuire, Lily Taylor from Six Feet Under, and more. The series is also now part of a fundraiser for the Wounded Warrior Project, with donations being made to Wounded Warrior for every 100 downloads, so you'll be helping veterans by listening. Episodes run the gamut from Civil War era to World War II to Vietnam to Desert Storm. You can find True War Stories Mission Report from Vogue Media at truewarstoriespodcast.com or anywhere you listen to podcasts. I'm also excited to share that Women of the Military is now on Wreaths Across America Radio every week on Fridays at 7 p.m. Eastern and Saturday mornings at 11 a.m. Eastern. You can find them on the iHeartRadio app, the Audacity app, or TuneIn. So let's get started with this week's interview. Welcome to the show, Janae. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So we met at the Military Influencer Conference last year, and I think you are one of the few people in the world who have got to see me do karaoke. It was such a fun night, and it was a really good way to meet other veterans. That was so much fun. That was probably like the highlight of the trip. (laughs) It was a perfect way for us to end a very stressful and intense week. For sure, for sure. It was really fun. So let's start with your story and we'll start with why did you decide to join the military? At 16 years old, my mom ended up actually dropping me off at a homeless shelter. So I was homeless in Hollywood for two and a half years and I was doing what I could to really try to change my story. I was trying to finish high school and I was working, um, but because I was living in survival mode, it was really difficult to to kind of create a path, especially in expensive Hollywood, California, that would help me to change my story. Um, one day, one of my, my friends came to me and she was like, I joined the Navy and the recruiter wants to talk to you. And I'm like, mm, no, I'm not a military girl. I was like, I don't even really know what the military does, right? Because I was, I just, that just wasn't a thing in my, my purview. And um, she was like, well, just come meet with the recruiter. He's going to buy you lunch. 
I was homeless. So free lunch sounded amazing. <laughs> so um, I went ahead and met with the recruiter at Carl's Jr. The things that he promised me or is, is it essentially presented to me really provided with like a long-term plan, a long-term goal, which is something that when you're living in survival mode, you're living day to day, sometimes even just hour by hour. And so there was no two to three year plan for me. I had no idea what my future looked like. So when I sat down with him and he gave me some ideas of what my life in the military would be like, including the potential of going to college, I was like, well, yeah, I mean, that would be amazing. I have nothing to lose here. I have nothing to leave behind. It was pre 9-11. So there was no, no war. In, in my mind, it was just peacetime. And we were just going to be like a big cruise ship just going around and traveling the world. So I thought, you know, what do I have to lose? I'm just going to go ahead and give it a go. And I went and, and enlisted in the Navy. Wow. What a powerful story. And just, I don't, it's just so amazing to hear where you started and where you are today. And just it's amazing to think of how many opportunities the military can give people and bring them out of really hard situations. And I know that your time in the military wasn't all sunshine and roses, but it is really amazing to see where you are today and where you were when you first started looking into the military. Yeah, it was kind of, it was tough. Um, you know, there, there would be days where the only essential meal I had was a ketchup packet that I would get a free ketchup packet from Popeye's, you know, or I would go in there and, and just eat that or, um, you know, attempts, multiple attempts to try and lure me into sex trafficking and drug addiction. Um, just, you know, really trying to stay focused and not getting caught up in all those things that the people around me were getting caught up in and trying to find as many mentors around me to um, really give me hope. And I had hope, but like I said, I was just, I just felt like I was just trying so hard and nothing was really coming to fruition. Because I had to work, I couldn't graduate high school. And because I couldn't graduate high school, I couldn't get a job that would pay me enough to pull me out of my situation. I was working under the table most of the time. And so, yeah, the Navy just, it off, offered me something that I didn't even know was an option. And I was, it, it was absolutely life-changing. So what was the process of enlisting? Did you have to wait very long? What was that process like? Oh man, <laughs> Every, that's a whole other story in itself. Uh, I was, I was so excited when I joined, um, I was working in a clothing store on Melrose Boulevard. I loved it. I loved what I was doing. And my dream was to eventually, you know, open my own store. So when the recruiter asked me what job I wanted, I was like, is there anything like that? <laughs> he was like, well, there's this job. It's called a storekeeper. And um, you, <laughs> you, yeah, I know you're laughing because my first job on the ship was managing the toilet paper storeroom. So that didn't really translate, but that's okay. So he he offered me this, this job as a storekeeper and I had my heart set on it. I was like, you know what? That's going to be the job that I'm going to have. It's going to help me towards what I want to do in the future. And so I, I signed up and it was fall and I was supposed to leave in December. So there was about four months that I had to stay on the delayed entry program. Mind you, I had not yet gotten my high school diploma. And so I had to uh, get a waiver in order to come in. I'm one of those people who actually got a waiver to come into the military. And I ended up actually not getting my uh, GED. And so we were deployed off the coast of uh, Afghanistan or uh, you know, in the, in the Gulf, that's when I got my GED on the ship. 
So I join, I've got four months of delayed entry program. I'm living in a homeless shelter and I go and I'm so excited. I tell them, Hey, you know, I have great news. I joined the Navy and they're like, mm, that's not what our program is built around. So you have to leave tonight. And so I ended up basically getting kicked out of the shelter. I, for that night, I had to sleep down in like the emergency, like kind of, it's basically in the lounge area on the floor and, you know, with people coming in and out, um, strung out on drugs. And it was really scary. Uh, one of my girlfriends, was like, you can go ahead and stay with us, but you can't stay until December. So you got to figure something out. So I go back to the recruiter and I'm like, I got to leave sooner. I have literally nowhere to sleep. And um, he was like, well, you'll lose your rating of a storekeeper, but you can come in undesignated airman. And he talked it up, right? <laughs> he was like, it's an amazing job. It's like an internship. And I was like, oh, okay. So whatever, I got to go. And so I left on Halloween of 2000. And when I get to boot camp, my recruiter or my RDCs were actually uh, storekeepers and aviation storekeepers. So I explained the whole story to them. And long story short, they were able to actually, before I left boot camp, get me put back into my rating of storekeeper. Yeah, I wrote a book, A Girl's Guide to Military Service. And so I had done some research about joining the military. And I thought you had to have a high school diploma or at a minimum a GED. And I didn't know that there was a waiver or a different way that you could go into the military without having either of those. So it just goes to show that there's lots of rules and regulations for joining the military, but sometimes there's a waiver. And so even if you think you can't join the military, there might be a way for you to serve. So always ask the question and maybe you can get a waiver. Absolutely. And I got the waiver for the GED um, and I was supposed to, while I was in boot camp, stay an extra week to get my GED. That's actually the, the requirement with that program with, with the waiver. But because when I got to boot camp, they changed me into that A school, everybody forgot <laughs> about that requirement. And I wasn't going to bring it up. I was like, I'm not staying in boot camp if I don't have to, right? And so sure enough, you know, I go to a school, we all forget that I'm supposed to do it. So I, here I am like out at the, in the fleet now and we're deployed. Um, this is our first deployment. And when you're deployed, they bring on board um, college professors and you can take classes during the deployment. It's, it's a really cool program they have. So me forgetting that I don't have a high school diploma or a GED, I try to sign up for the college course and they're like, yeah, you're kind of missing something here. <laughs> and so I go down and I talk to the career counselor and they're like, oh, we got to get that done like yesterday. And so uh, I sat down on the Mestex for eight hours taking the test and um, sent it off and ended up getting my GED while I was deployed. Kind of a kind of cool story because I don't think many people share that one. Yeah, when I was doing my research, it sounded like you had to have your high school diploma or a GED and there was no middle ground. I didn't see anything about waivers. So I'm really glad you brought that up and shared your experience so that people could know that there are possibilities and there are ways. And sometimes just because you think the answer is no, there might be a way that it could be yes, especially in times right now where the military is in need of people and it's a little bit easier to break the rules unlike when they have an oversupply of people and they don't need to have waivers to meet their quotas. So it sounds like you deployed really quickly after you finished A school. So where did you go and how quickly did you deploy? Yeah, I so I joined the Navy in 2000, um, October of 2000, and then 9-11 happened a year later. Uh, it was great in the beginning, right? We were uh, we were going, we had the Pearl Harbor movie premiere on our flight deck. We had all the celebrities coming on board because I was on, a, on an aircraft carrier in San Diego, the Stennis. And 
it was like the life, you know, it was amazing. And then in June was when we had the Pearl Harbor movie, the premiere on our ship. We met all the celebrities, 9-11 happens. And then a month later, less than a month later, they're like, okay, we're going, we're going to war. And we weren't scheduled to deploy for another six months or so. And it was scary for us because we had just watched the Pearl Harbor movie. And so we knew what our fate could be. Um, And so we ended up shipping out a month later and um, we spent seven and a half months. We did 111 days straight of combat air operations. Yeah, it was, it was pretty crazy. And we had like a hundred, it was like 112 days straight at sea, which is pretty unheard of for a carrier. Typically you pull into port a couple of times because you've got to restock and replenish and stuff like that. So uh, it was a little scary, but thankfully we made it back home. Yeah, that makes sense. It was right near the start of the conflict in Afghanistan and it wasn't the normal ops tempo. And you talked a little bit about how there was a lot of fear, but was there a mix of excitement or was the fear more overwhelming? What was that experience like? Yeah, I mean, I think you hear a lot and it's kind of weird that, you know, here we are 20 plus years later um, because I remember it all like it was yesterday. I remember when 9-11 happened, we were actually out to sea when it happened. We were um, just out for like a three day workup and we were supposed to pull in that morning. They were like, you know, the captain comes over, tells us what happened um, over the 1MC and we ended up staying out to sea so that we could patrol the coast uh, the West Coast. And so we were part of, uh, you know, kind of the watch mission on that. And then being selected to be one of the first ships to deploy, it was, I think we were the first battle group actually to deploy. Uh, Roosevelt was already over there uh, in support of Operation Enduring Freedom. It was kind of a two-part feeling, like an immense amount of pride because the day after 9-11, everybody was just very patriotic, very much like, you know, pride, proud of our country and wanting to support that mission and and the love for country. So there was pride, but also just the unknown of this hasn't happened and we've been at peacetime for so long. Uh, This was the first time that a a war was initiated from ship air combat, right? So there was no boots on ground or anything like that at the time. We had to go in and first clear things out and and clear the way before people could come in and do boots on the ground um, combat operations. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear about. I think sometimes when you think about deploying, especially I got there in 2010 and there was a base, you know, Bagram and a bunch of FOBs and other big bases like Kandahar and all these people and all this equipment. But, you know, it all starts with first making it so that there's a place that they can build a base and then the footprint slowly expands over time and the equipment and all these things. And so I think that's really interesting to hear about those stories because sometimes I think we, we forget about all the things that have to happen before, you know, Bagram becomes a base where 30,000 people are working and living. Exactly. It was, there was nobody in concert at that time. And um, I think that's what, you know, we kind of have our military banter, right? Of who does more, whose mission is more important. But <laughs> the reality is all of our missions are necessary in order for us to, um, to, you know, to perform the tasks. And so for the very beginning of the war and for anyone who goes back and reads up on it, yeah, people would realize that it was actually the aircraft carriers and, and those of us who were forward deployed then that initiated 
Operation Enduring Freedom. And all that you saw when you were there in 2010 was what we prepared and kind of cleared, cleared the way for. It is, it's kind of interesting when you, if you really look into to the full history of um, 9-11, I think it, it would be really intriguing for some people. Yeah, and to think that in 2001, 2002, you were on a ship and you were out there supporting the mission. And, you know, they often talk about the start of the conflict in Afghanistan, Operation Enduring Freedom, and they rarely mention women and the fact that women were there. Women were helping support the jets that needed to fly into Afghanistan and get it cleared. And then women have just been supporting the military in so many ways prior to when women could fully be integrated into the military when the combat ban was lifted. Women were in combat. Women were supporting combat missions. Women have been there. And I think that's why it's so important to talk about our stories so that people can hear about what women have done and just hear about the different experiences. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it on an aircraft carrier, uh, a forward deployed aircraft carrier has about 6,000 people. One in three is women, right? So you've got about 2,000 women on each carrier. And then if you go out into the battle group and, and, and see who else is out there, it, yeah, there was a lot of us, a lot of us that were forward deployed at the very start of Operation Enduring Freedom. Yeah, thank you for pointing it out. It's just, I mean, the numbers are crazy, and I don't think people realize how many women are there. So you told us a little bit about your story of being deployed for seven and a half months, but are there any interesting stories or experiences from that time that you want to share with us? Yeah, I mean, especially since this is really a woman in, uh, woman of the military podcast, it's important to highlight some of the the paving the way, right? I I always really admired um, those who had paved the way before me. And I, I took that very seriously because, you know, this was 23 years ago when I joined. And so the military has come a very long way for women since I served. But when I was serving, it was still very challenging for us. And we were still trying to um, pr prove our worth and prove that we could do what everybody else could do. And, um, you know, being denied opportunities, being put behind the desk as soon as we got on the ship because, you know, women can't do that job or that's too heavy for you. Let me carry that. And so I always really appreciated those who had gone before me, but I knew that what I was doing was also going to pave the way for those who came behind me. And I remember when we deployed, uh, I'll kind of have to lay out the job description a little bit. So as a storekeeper, we managed the supplies on this ship. And prior to deploying, we didn't get a chance to stock the ship up fully for deployment because we had to leave quickly. So when you're at sea, we have what's called a replenishment at sea and you have like a vertical one and you have just kind of a ship to ship one via cables. So that's how they take the supplies from a smaller ship and then they put them onto our ship and vice versa. They take anything that we need to offload and we send it over to the smaller ship and then they can pull into port and offload it. And so I was assigned to the team for the vertical replenishment. A vertical replenishment is when the helicopter actually transfers the supplies. So they go from one, they lower, just hover above the flight deck, they pick up the, the supplies and then they bring them over to the other ship, they release the cable and then we take the supplies and we, we bring them onto the ship. Um, and in order to offload, we have to do, do the reverse. So I was assigned to drive the forklift on the flight deck. And I remember, um, and so it was like load pickup. And I remember there was a position on the team of a person who actually had to stand 
with the load that we were going to be sending off and hold a cable to connect to the helicopter as it hovered above. So it's just the helicopter is going to be like a few feet above you. You have to reach up, hook this stanchion into the helicopter, run out from under the helicopter so they can lift the load off and carry it over to the other ship. So I was like this skinny little 110 pound girl, but I wanted to do that job. I was like, I want to try it. I want to try it. And I kept asking the chief and he was like, no, you'll blow over the side. You're not strong enough. You have to perform this quickly. No females were allowed to hook the stanchion. They weren't allowed to do that part. And one day when the chief kind of wasn't looking, the first class that was in charge was like, go ahead and give it a go. So he sends me out there and I'm standing there and I'm waiting and I'm like, okay, I know that whatever I do right now is going to set the stage for women on the ship in the future and whether or not we're allowed to be part of this, this particular function. And so for the helicopter to hover above the flight deck, you don't want it to hover too long because it starts to pose a danger to those who are actually on the flight deck and also those who are in the helicopter. So you have to hook the stanchion very quickly. And that's how you determine the success of the person who's down there doing that. And so I'm standing there and my heart's racing. I'm on the flight deck, which is one of the most dangerous jobs in the world. I've got a helicopter lowering above me. I'm looking up and I, I see the guy. He's kind of pointing to where I need to hook the stanchion. I'm like, I got one shot. I just have to, because if I don't get this in on that first shot, they're going to fly away and they're going to put somebody else in this position. So I look up, I aim it and then boom, I just snap it right in like faster than any of the other guys had done. It was incredible. Like people were just like, whoa. And I run out from under. After that, I ended up actually being put as the lead. So then I got to decide who was going to be on the team and who wasn't. It was, it was really cool. I was pretty much the first person, the first female on that ship to be able to do that function. Yeah. I mean, I think that you put into words what so many women who have talked on the podcast of feeling like this need to prove themselves and just this expectation not only to do the job well, but to do it excellent and to ensure that if you get the opportunity, you can leave the door open for the next generation of women. And I know that when Nicole Malowski was on the podcast, her episode is 93. She is the first woman to be a Thunderbird pilot in the Air Force. And she talked about how she had this pressure because not only is being a Thunderbird pilot a demanding job and requires a lot of precision and hard work, she also knew that as a woman, she was given the opportunity to do this role and she needed to keep the door open for the women behind her and she was able to do that. But she really did talk about that pressure that is on women. And I think as more women break glass ceilings it makes it easier, but it's still there. There's still ceilings to be broken, and there is this pressure to not only do well for your own sake, but also for the women who are going to come after you. Yes, and and it's still you know the case today for things that I do because I have two daughters, and so I know that I'm paving the way for my daughters. Or when I see other women, you know, breaking records, I'm like, they're paving the way for our children, and and we can't forget our history and what we were and we're not allowed to do it. You know, there's, we're still trying to really prove our worth, I guess, in the military. And it's like you said, when you talk about women in combat, you know, there's still a, a mental model out there that women have never served in combat and how, you know, if, if a woman says she's in combat or she's served in combat operations, you know, it's, it's immediately challenged, right? Um, if a woman says she was in the military, it's immediately challenged. 
and you have to go back and just prove everything that you did in order for people to even give you the same regard that they would automatically give someone else simply for just saying they joined, right? So I think it's a, it's, it's, we still have a long way to go, but a lot of progress has been made just since I was serving. Like, we didn't have ponytails. <laughs> I love that. I used to have such bad migraines. <laughs> yes, I think the ponytails are great. I never did a good job with my hair and I always got in trouble. So that's something that I think is really, I mean, it's a really big stressor and people don't realize how much it impacts you. And it's so nice to be able to wear a ponytail. I, I think it's great. I felt like I had to tone down my femininity to be in the military. And so just seeing some of these changes, I, I, I really do believe in the difference between, you know, diver, uh, diversity and inclusion, right? Diversity is just saying, okay, we've met the numbers, we're good, right? But inclusion is truly um, welcoming people with the traits that they bring to the table. It's not expecting them to morph and mold in order to be welcomed. And I felt like I had to morph and mold in order to be respected, in order to be appreciated, you know. And so just being able to see that, that girls are allowed to continue to express their femininity and still be respected on a team is really powerful. Yeah, I think people don't understand how big of a deal it is. And if you dive into the research on why the change was made, I mean, the challenges that women were having with hair loss and migraines and so many other medical problems along with like I spent so much time and money on different contraptions to have the perfect bun and it didn't affect really anyone's life except mine and for the fact that I was always trying this new tool to try and figure out how to make my hair to fit into rags and then when I deployed to Afghanistan and I had to wear a helmet my hair couldn't be in rags and wear a helmet, I'd have to take it out. And what I did was I would undo the bun and I had my hair braided and then I would put my helmet on. I would stick my braid up inside the helmet so that it wouldn't be seen. But I, it was really challenging and it wasn't ever comfortable. And it's those little things that make it so that you can not only be more comfortable, but to do your job better and making it easier for women. I think it's really important. Yeah. And you actually make a point that I don't know that anyone has pointed out about you having to move your hair so that your helmet could fit. You know, a ponytail is a lot easier to move down than a full on bun, especially if you're, you know, doing, like you said, the gel and all of that to put a sock bun in, you know, if you try to put your helmet on or your hat on your cover, right. You can't really move it that easily. You got to go redo your entire hair and add some water and all this stuff. But if you're able to have a braid or a ponytail, um, it's a lot easier to just move that down. So while that the bun has always been kind of, <laughs> you know, uh, promoted as a, a necessity, I think if anything, it's actually made it a little bit more challenging for us. Yeah, it's so important to talk about these things because even though they seem like small things, they're really important things that need to be addressed. And I mean, there is a reason of safety on like why you have to have your hair back, especially when you're working with machinery. But there is another way to go about solving the problem where it doesn't cause medical issues and it's more practical for when you are in combat and wearing a helmet. So that was a great side discussion, but I want to get back to your story. So let's talk about what was it like to come home? And before we get to that, is there anything else from your deployment that you wanted to talk about before 
you talk about coming home? No, the deployment was the deployment was good, and uh, coming home again. This is something that you know. I wish every service member who returned back from, you know, all of the wars that that followed Operation Enduring Freedom, got experience because as the years went on, I think you guys didn't really get experience the same kind of welcome home that we did. We were the first ones to return back from war. So 9-11 happens, the country is extremely patriotic, and we are sent off to war. And I tell you, it wasn't just the pier that was full of people waving flags to send us off. Like the entire base was covered in people out there with their flags, waving us off and just praying that we were going to make it home safely. And so when we returned, we got that same welcome. The base was covered in people just welcoming welcoming us home um you know going out to the restaurants going out into town with our families after we returned back everybody was thanking us for our service thanking us for for what we had done there was news articles all over about the you know what what the operation that we had just conducted and i felt an immense sense of pride i i did i don't know if you know but on an aircraft carrier or on a ship when you return home you man the rails so we all stand around the edge of the ship and in our uniform. And, um, so we can see them and they can see us. (laughs) And I was just bawling my eyes out when we got home because one, we made it back. We made it back safely. And then two, I was, I just felt like our service was appreciated at that time. I, I truly wish everybody could have that moment. I think it would, it would put more patriotism in our hearts. And then, and it kind of did, I guess you could say, give a little closure too, right? Because I think a lot of people come back from deployment and they don't get that kind of closure of your service was appreciated. And um, I think that's where some of the, you know, maybe contention comes from. It's just that they never really got that closure of being appreciated for what they had just come back from doing. But then the hard part was really just immersing myself back into society. I had been gone for seven and a half months. I hadn't driven a car. I didn't really have any bills because, you know, I didn't have an apartment or anything while I was gone. People's lives had gone on and, you know, people had gotten married and had kids. All these things had happened that I wasn't here to be a part of. And so I had to try to find my way back into society. And that was a little bit challenging to do. Yeah. When I got home from my deployment, my friend picked me up at the airport and she got distracted making a sign to welcome me home that she actually showed up late. And so I came home to the airport and there wasn't anyone there to greet me. And I don't know why she came, but I don't feel like my unit really was worried about me. They just expected me to get back to the base on my own. I didn't have that kind of support. And it was 2010 and we'd been deploying a lot and there were so many people coming and going. I felt like they just didn't have a lot of support for those of us that are coming home. And I did receive my bronze star in a ceremony in front of the entire unit. And a few people congratulated me, but more people were questioning why I got a bronze star and what I did. And it was really hard to come home and not be welcomed back and instead be questioned for the work that I had done. And so, yeah, I think that is a very different experience than what you had. I think that the war, it just went on so long that people became immune to it when are desensitized. When we left, it was scary for everyone. Nobody knew what that meant, what was going to happen. But yeah, it just ended up going on for so long that people became desensitized to it. And they, like you said, they weren't going out and thanking you. And if anything, now, you know, things have gotten to the point where it's almost like 
uh, you know, you may, may end up walking, coming home to a protest, right. And, and, and people being mad at you for having deployed. And so I do feel like having people there welcoming us back, showing their appreciation did give us a little bit of closure on what we had just come back from. And I'm sorry that you didn't get that. In my opinion, you absolutely deserve your bronze star. And I thank you for your service. Thank you. That really means a lot. And it was just such a weird time. And maybe it was because we were individual augmentees and there were just, I think, two or two, maybe three of us that came back on that flight. And I know that the guy that I was deployed with, his family came and got him and he was worried about me because my friend wasn't there. And so he offered to give me a ride back. And I said, no, my friend's coming. I think we had, we must have had cell phones at that point. And my friend did show up, and I don't know, it was just kind of a weird time. And my husband had already moved across the country for a PCS, so he wasn't there. And so there was lots of different things going on that made the whole situation different. But I don't know, it's just kind of weird. It was almost like, oh, she's back, good, put her back to work, like we have something for her to do. Like, <laughs> they were just happy to have their IA person back. <laughs> yeah. Put you on the watch list. <laughs> Yep, they were like, you're back, let's get back to work. But really, I was also in processing to out-process so that I could move to where my husband was. So there were like all kinds of crazy dynamics. They didn't really know what to do with me because I was only there for about a month and a half before I moved on to the next assignment. So it was just kind of crazy. And there was so much stuff going on on the base, deployed, everything. There was a lot going on. So let's talk a little bit more about your story. How much longer were you in the Navy before you left? So I served a total of eight years active duty. One of the things that uh, I didn't really mention earlier is um, during my time in A school, I ended up uh, being sexually assaulted, actually just raped by one of my shipmates. We had been invited on an MWR trip and um I was, you know, we're all 18 years old. And when we get there, it was to New Orleans for Mardi Gras. And so when we get there, the chaperones, there was two chaperones that were on the trip. One was uh, E6 and one of them was a civilian, our fun boss. And they said, you know, oh, if you guys want, we can give you some of your money back and you guys can have five to a room instead of two to a room. I think they didn't book enough hotel rooms but they made it seem like they were doing it so we could have some of our money back to enjoy out at Mardi Gras. And so they were like, do you guys agree to, you know, have less rooms? So everybody says, yeah, we do. And they, they put us in the rooms, but they don't, they don't split up the genders in the rooms. They just, they just put five to a row. And so I ended up in a room with two other couples. There was five of us. So I'm like stuck on the floor. They get the beds, right? We go out to Mardi Gras. We're all underage. We're all drinking come back. I fall asleep. Somebody left my, our room door open. And one of my shipmates um, came in and while I was asleep, he raped me. I woke up in the middle of the uh, attack. I kicked him off of me, start screaming for the chaperone to come, call the police. You know, I made a huge, huge, huge scene. And the chaperone comes in the E6 and he tries to kind of talk me down. And he basically threatens me that if we call the police, everyone here is going to be arrested and you're going to end up back where you came from on the streets, homeless. And so I got scared and I got quiet. When we got back to the base, one of the girls who had not gone found out what happened and reported it on my behalf. 
And once a report's open, at that time, once a report's open, there's nothing you can do about it. You have to be part of that report. So we go through the whole process of them investigating. The guy admitted what he had done. He admitted that I had been sleeping and somehow his lawyer was able to get that thrown out and he was, uh, he was given a not guilty ruling. So uh, one of the things that kind of played into the future of my career was while that was all happening, that E6 pulls me aside and starts kind of intimidating me into not saying that I had told him what had happened. Like everybody knew I reported it. Everybody was there while I was making a scene. But he he pulled the whole, you know, my my career will be ruined. I have children. I'm married. And you'll ruin my whole life if you tell them that you reported to me and I didn't do anything. So he kind of scared me out of it. And um, so at the time, I said, no, no, I didn't tell anyone. And then when we went to court, by now, I'm like an E4. I've already been out to the fleet. And I know that that person should have absolutely reported what happened. So while we're in court and I'm testifying on my own, you know, on my own behalf about what happened, I said, no, I did tell someone. And they were like, well, why didn't you say that when they initially interviewed you? And I'm like, cause he scared me. He told me not to. So I feel like that played a big part in, in whether or not this person uh, faced justice. I feel like if I had not been intimidated into silence the first and second time, um, he would have been convicted and he wouldn't have been able to go out and continue to do these things to other women in the military. And so when I finished my tour on my first ship, I got an opportunity to go up to Great Lakes and be, it's kind of a, it's called a student division commander. So it's essentially an extension of the RDCs, the drill instructors. And I was like, you know what? I want to go up there and I want to do that because I want to protect girls from going through what I went through. Not just girls, but people. But at the time we thought that it was just girls. This was a long time ago. So that's what I did. I I took orders up there and um, I spent four years as an instructor in Great Lakes and really just making sure that uh, if I saw anything that was alarming or any issues that I was able to be an advocate and make sure that they didn't go through the same thing I went through. And there were a couple instances where I did um, have to intervene. And in one case, actually, the chief ended up retiring because he got caught trying to spark up a relationship with one of the new recruits. So I really committed at that time that I was going to be the mentor that I didn't have. I didn't have a female in leadership when I was going through a school to, to kind of help me through that situation. And so I wanted to make sure that I was there and I was able to advocate for those girls. So that was the final four years of my career. I met my husband while I was up there and um, he is not, he's never served in the military. And um, so he was my, my spouse. <laughs> we had my daughter and um, it was around that time that I, I initially was a lifer and I was going to stay in forever. I was a do-gritter. I was like, you know, I was, had all these awards and I had done all these amazing things and I had my daughter and like my entire perspective changed. And I was like, I want to be present for her. I don't want to have to go through this whole you know, you're trying to get out of work to be with your kid or I did, I just didn't want that to be my future. And so I decided that I was going to go ahead and transition out after that at my eight year mark. You're the second woman who talked about how they were able to advocate for women who were either younger or needed someone to help support them. And I remember when Ruthie shared her story in episode 58, she talked about her experience of being raped and how the system failed her the first time. And then the second time she was raped, she didn't even report it because she didn't want to go through what she had experienced. And so when, when someone came to ask for help, she 
was going to be there to ensure that if she reported it, that the system would work and she would follow up. And she was able to give back and support another young woman who experienced something that was horrible. And instead of having another really bad experience after the event, she was able to get the justice that she deserved. So I think that shows why it's so important to have women in higher levels that can help young women who are joining the military or who are in their career and they need someone who can help them and can advocate for them. Especially because you are so young and an E6 was telling you something and you were like, okay, I have to do what he's saying and I don't want to ruin his life and so I need to not say anything. Both times that he convinced you to do that. Yeah. And you don't know, like, it's like, it's like a, I I would compare it to like a kid in school and their teacher, you know, like you'd believe everything they say, they're they're so important. And that's how a lot of, uh, of people also get taken advantage of romantically by these guys. They prey on these new recruits because they look at them as like somebody in leadership, somebody who's so important, you know, in some cases maybe fantasize about like, Oh, if, if I, if I date him, like we'll get married in my life, you know, like there's all these ways that they're able to pray and manipulate on these young recruits. And I was like, it's not going to happen on my watch. And it's still not because I'm still advocating. (laughs) Yeah. It's so important that we advocate and that we talk about it and that we support Now we know both men and women who experience this and work to make changes happen because there's still a lot of work to do. Is this part of why you decided to write your story into a book? It is. You know, I got out of the military. I was able to um, get a federal job and promote pretty quickly within the federal uh, sector. And, you know, I've had a great career. I use most of my success to, you know, I've always been a mentor for women. I've always been, uh, you know, I've always considered myself in a leadership role as being able to be available and to lend myself to those who need it. But throughout my career, I would mostly focus on programs that helped with the homeless community because that's another area where I have empathy. And so I was like, well, we have this, you know, um, on the base, you have all these people who are changing their stories right outside the gate. You have these youth who have no example, like I didn't, right, of what could be. And so we created several mentorship programs for them to be able to bring them on base, kind of show them what their opportunities were and help them land jobs, really life-changing jobs. There's a couple articles about that out there. So fast forward and I'm in Hawaii. I'm serving in a leadership role for, for Pearl Harbor Naval Shipyard. But for some reason, I just felt like I still was like trying to morph into something I wasn't in order to be respected in my position. I was at Pearl Harbor Naval Shipyard. We're repairing. I was in nuclear repair, right? So we're repairing submarines. It's very much uh, a male dominated type of environment. And so I kept trying to morph into something I wasn't, morph into something I wasn't so that I could be respected on the team. And then I, I see this, um, it's kind of a funny story, but I see this ad from Navy Federal about if you go on Instagram and you create a video, you could win $5,000. I'm like, that sounds cool. I don't know what Instagram is, but I'll go ahead and give it a go. <laughs> so I create an Instagram account and I did not win the $5,000, um, <laughs> but I did win the journey because I, I was able to pretty quickly grow a following on Instagram and across several other social media platforms. In doing so, I started a business a boutique. I finally got to go back all the way back to my dream and start an online boutique. And I was able to build this amazing community of mostly women, but there's also a lot of men as well. 
but I was able to build this amazing community and, and through my boutique, still be able to mentor a lot of people, you know, who, who will come and say, I'm inspired by your story. I'm inspired by your story. And, uh, about a year, a year and a half ago, the Drew Barrymore show invited me on and they were like, you know, we'd love to have you on our show. We want to do a makeover for women veterans for Veterans Day. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. So I go on there and I'm thinking that we're going to get a chance to tell our story when we go. So I thought this is going to be a really good opportunity to share my story and to just kind of inspire other people. But we didn't get a chance to do that. We, we were just pretty much like they showed a little bit of our story, but it was mostly just to highlight a women makeover. I came back feeling a little bit grateful but kind of defeated. Like, how come I didn't get a chance to sit and tell my story? How come, you know, only, I I hate to say it, like the male veterans got to sit down and tell their stories and the women were just there for a makeover. No disrespect to Drew, still appreciate the opportunity, but it did make me feel a little bit defeated. But then I had to take a little bit of personal um, accountability and that was, my story's not out there. So how can I expect her to know my story? How can I expect her to offer me that opportunity when it's not truly out there? It's just out there in piecemeal through, you know, posts here and there that I would share parts of my story. And so I said, you know what, if I want to, if I want to be able to have the impact that I dream of having, I need to truly just open up my life and share my entire story with people. And I know that's going to be hard because then they can turn around and use that to hurt me. Right. Or try to. So sat down for about six months in the middle of the night while the family was sleeping and just typing away. And I went through the whole process of putting my story into a book and being able to release it. It was a tough experience. I had to open up a lot of wounds. I had to dig deep and um, pull back memories that I had suppressed over the years in order to protect myself. Um, But most importantly, I had to craft my story in a way that wasn't just trauma dumping. And it wasn't just me putting out all the bad things that had happened, but really sharing the mentality that I had along the way that has gotten me to where I am and and to be able to be my own hero. I released my book in April on my 40th birthday, and it was a number one bestseller on the first day. So it's it's been an incredible, incredible journey, and I'm so grateful that I did that. And in case people are interested in ordering a copy of Janae's book, it is called Perfectly Flawed, A Veteran's Journey from Homeless to Hero. So you can check it out in the show notes or it's available on Amazon. In the book, it's specifically talking about how, you know, when I was throughout life, really, there's been instances where I could have stopped and waited for somebody to come in and rescue me especially at 16 years old when I was homeless. But I realized very quickly that nobody was coming to save me. And it wasn't because they didn't want to. And it's not because we shouldn't be out trying to help other people, but everybody's kind of going through their own thing. And so you can't just expect people to prioritize you um, when they may not even be able to save themselves at the time. And so I realized very quickly in life that I, if I have something kind of that I'm going through, I'm going to have to be willing to step up and be my own hero and pull myself through. And that's what I ended up having to do. I love how you highlighted the themes and the focus and talked about how it's not just a trauma dump. I think it's really hard to write your story, but when you can outline and explain it the way you did, it makes me really excited to dive in. And it's on my list of books to read. I have a lot of books by women veterans that I've been reading and have been working my way through. There's just so many amazing stories by women veterans that are out there that are highlighting our stories and also you know, stories that are written by women veterans that don't have anything to do with the military. So there's a lot. There is a list on Goodreads 
that I'll link to in the show notes that has over 100 books written by women veterans. And if you have a Goodreads account and one of the books that you really like is on there, vote for it. And if it's not on there, add it to it. We're always looking to add more women veteran stories to that list. And it's so important for women veterans to share their story because, like you said, you hadn't shared your story and now you have it out in a book and people are reading it and hopefully you'll have an opportunity to share it in more places. And you also started a podcast, which is really exciting. Yes, yes. It, after I released my book, and, and you're right, like a lot of people, some some people just aren't ready also to tell their story. I feel like sometimes when you give people information about you, they are able to then turn around and weaponize it to hurt you, bad people. And that's why I was scared for so long to to share my full story because I was worried that people were going to, you know, kind of use that to hurt me. But then how can I really inspire the next generation if I'm not willing to share the the hardships that I've also had to go through to get to where I am? But it's been a journey since I've been, uh, you know, on, on several podcasts and, and on stages to share my story. And I've had so many people reach out to me and say that it's been life changing for them. I think that society right now is perpetuating the vict- victim mindset. And it's important for people to get out and share stories that counter that and that show that, you know, if you fall into the victim mindset, you are going to get stuck. And so you have to be willing to just step in and share and save yourself and not sit around and wait for somebody to come save you. It's, it's a really important message. I'm, I'm really excited about it. And so now I'm like, Hey, I've had this opportunity to share my story. You know, people like you are giving me a chance to sit on your platforms and share it. So now it's my turn to pay that forward and to allow people a safe space to share their stories. We talked a little bit about when I was raped in A school and how I didn't have any uh, real like leaders that I could look to. And I'll tell you that one of the experiences that I had along the way, especially over the years when I would share my story is, and this is with men and women, is kind of the gaslighting or what did you do to deserve it? What could you have done differently? A lot of unsafe responses that made me close off and not want to share my story anymore. And I think that's why a lot of people don't share their stories. So I've created Perfectly Flawed Podcast. All of my brand is Perfectly Flawed. My shop, my book, everything is Perfectly Flawed. I created Perfectly Flawed Podcast. I want people to be able to share their stories and to help inspire. But there are some stories where it's going to require someone who offers up a safe space free of judgment and gaslighting. And that's what my podcast does is it offers a space where anyone who has experienced something that they feel like they're going to be judged or gaslit for, they're not going to get that on my podcast. We're going to listen safely and let them share their story and what, what they want people to know about it. Yes, it is so important. And When I started my podcast, I didn't realize the different things that would come from having a podcast focused specifically on military women. At the time, there weren't any other podcasts that were focused on women in the military specifically, and now there are a bunch of podcasts that give women a place to share their story and different focuses and niches within the women veteran community, so that has been really cool. And also... Having a safe place for people to share their story has been really neat. And some of the women who've had this chance to share their story on the podcast have, in turn, had the opportunity to speak. One of my past guests talked about how the first time she shared her story was on the podcast, and now she's speaking, and she's just had opportunities, and it all started with her sharing her story on the podcast, which is really cool. So I think it's really great that you are sharing 
your story and the stories of others on your podcast. So it's really exciting. <laughs> Absolutely. And you started your podcast several years ago and you paved the way for people like me. So my little baby podcast, thanks you. <laughs> Thank you for paving the way. <laughs> yeah, I think it's so great that we can support each other and that our community can keep growing by more women sharing stories and creating new platforms and just supporting one another. It's really great. So your episode is almost over because we're running out of time, but there's so much more that we could dive in and talk about. So I guess people are going to have to go get your book so that they can hear more of your story. But is there anything else from your time in the military that you wanted to highlight that we haven't had a chance to talk about yet? Um, I think just the last thing that I didn't really, we didn't really get to is just the transition out of the military. Again, that's going to be a big risk. It's going to be a challenge. I, I had a lot of people when I was in the military who tried to tell me that I wasn't going to have anything after I got out and I was going to end up working at McDonald's and making jokes and being super passive, passive aggressive, trying to fear me out of making that decision to transition. It is a very scary transition. It was challenging for me. I transitioned in 2008 and that was when the recession hit. It was a hard thing, very humbling having to go out and look for a job and realizing that as an E5, I wasn't as high up in the, in the food chain that I thought I was and that people didn't really value those skills as much as I expected them to. But it is possible and you can make an amazing life for yourself post-military. The military was one of the, joining the military was one of the best decisions I ever made and transitioning out of the military was also one of the best decisions I ever made. So don't be afraid to do either. I, I think they both have great opportunities. And again, you know, be your own hero, whatever risks you feel like you want to take, go for it and, and give it a try and then get my book. And hopefully that'll get you inspired and excited to, to keep going. And that leads really well into my last question, which is what advice would you give to a young woman who is considering joining the military? Because I was raped in a school, um, it's really important to share this advice that uh, when you're in boot camp, you're taught that everyone around you is your brother and sister, and you start to think that you can let your guard down and you can trust everyone as blindly. And, you know, these people have my back. They're going to protect me. People come into the military from all different walks of life with all different moral backgrounds, beliefs, and in some cases, bad intentions. And so what I would give you for advice is don't let your guard down fully. Protect yourself. Don't put yourself in, in situations where people can take advantage of you. You know, if you're if you're out drinking, make sure that you have people that you trust around you to, um, but also still never drink to the point where you can't protect yourself. But really, it's just don't let your guard down fully like you are expecting that is going to be okay to do because you just can't trust everyone around you, unfortunately. But it can also be an amazing place to um, pave the way for those who are coming up behind you and, and those who have served. I thank you for your service and for giving all of us that opportunity. Thanks so much for being a guest. I really appreciated having you on today and to just share your experience and everybody go out and get perfectly flawed. Thanks so much for listening to this week's interview. I'm really thankful that you took the time to listen to this episode, and I wanted to tell you about two resources that may help you in your journey of military service. And so the first is my 
new book, A Girl's Guide to Military Service, which is available at the link in the show notes on Amazon and Barnes and Nobles. You can go check it out. It's A Girl's Guide to Military Service. It's meant to help you answer all your questions about military life and give you a firm foundation for the start of your career. And if you're looking for mentorship or want to be a mentor, please check out the Women of the Military Mentorship Program, which is also linked to in the show notes. You can sign up to be a mentee or a mentor. Thanks so much for listening and have a great week.